What's up, what's up, what's up? It's Vegas, a.k.a. Mr. 702, live from the building, and we are about to go under the armor. The level of success you see in your life has a direct result on your belief system. Now, I'm not talking about religion or philosophy here, and I'm not going to try to sound like a YouTube motivation coach or a life coach, but I've been really trying to understand the key to success. I think that everyone in life wants to be successful, and our desire is to be successful and to achieve our dreams. And I just remember being a child and having very, very, very interesting thoughts about success. Um, I must be transparent. My father was extremely negative towards me. If I could be quite honest, he had a very traumatic upbringing. And so dealing with these demons as an adult had a great impact on his overall parenting style. I grew up often with my dad being extremely condescending, letting me know that I wasn't going to amount to anything and that I was just going to be like the other individuals on the streets and on the block. Um, It was very disappointing and very heartbreaking for me as a child and as a teenager because I really wanted to be like my father and I really wanted to impress him badly. Like the fact that I even play basketball is mostly because my dad played basketball. I didn't even pick up playing basketball until my eighth grade year um, just because it simply wasn't a sport for me, but my dad was known as a above average basketball player. And I wanted to do something like him or do something that would bring him great honor. Um, now believing in yourself means having faith in your own capabilities. It means believing that you can do something and it means trusting in your own innate abilities. When you believe in yourself, you can overcome self-doubt. And have the confidence to take action and get things done. We all have fears, doubts, and self-sabotaging behavior within us. Poor work life. Procrastination. Lack of clarity. Indecisiveness. Inaction. Avoiding responsibilities. Victimhood. Low self-esteem. We all have it inside of us. However... We also love hearing about the success stories, the Bill Gates, the Walt Disney, the Steve Jobs, the J.K. Rowlands. They were all able to overcome adversity and failure in a large part due to their outstanding belief within themselves. We all have talent, skills, training, and tools. However, if these were the requirements for success, Wouldn't we all be more successful? Wouldn't we all be reaching a level in life that is greater or achieving closer to our greatest possible self? One of the most vital factors is the ability to overcome obstacles. And that 
is what we know. But to overcome obstacles, to overcome adversities, one's confidence in their self must be at high. Like in sports, you often hear that confidence is sometimes better than skill. If a boxer or a fighter has confidence, they can go out there and and fight and defeat somebody that may be more talented and more experienced than them just based off that simple confidence. And self-work is the fundamental foundation for self-confidence. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and y'all probably already know this. I am a very confident individual, borderlining on cocky and maybe a sprinkle of narcissistic. Um, However, I believe that my confidence comes from my ability to always be attempting to work on myself, attempting to improve myself, attempting to expand my knowledge and my reasoning and my understanding. Now, self-work is quite different. For everybody. And though what I am about to say is not the end all be all, I do believe that these self work techniques can increase one's confidence and lead a person in the right direction. I believe the first thing of self work is to work on your strengths. <laughs> now, we have so much rhetoric that tells us you need to work on your weaknesses. And I disagree because a chicken joint does not work on its hamburgers and a gym does not work on its catering. Like focusing on one's weakness can create doubt in one's mind, creating a symbol of shame, failure, and utter hesitation. What you do great was given to you at birth. And that is something that nobody can take away. And so it is important that you determine, that you def- identify, that you know without a shadow of a doubt what your strengths are so that you can get the most mileage out of them. Discovering what you are great at and then becoming masterful at it is the way to go. They use this practice in sports and business, focusing on the positive. Perfect example, Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Greek freak that plays for the Milwaukee Bucks. He is not a great shooter. And while he is not a great shooter, he does so many other things great. And when he focuses on doing the things that he already does great, it allows him to have amazing and excellent performances. He's never going to be a guy that should be shooting 15 three-pointers, but he is a guy that can go to the rim with reckless abandonment. Now, once you are able to master your strengths, then you can take a step back and begin to focus on your weaknesses. Once you shift to developing your strengths, you will effortlessly feel more competent and more confident. And you will put a harder effort into maximizing your natural abilities. And at the end, one of the things about being self-confident is also feeling empowered. 
which by focusing and mastering your strengths, you are in return empowering yourself. Now, once you understand your strengths, you just can't leave it there. We all need to be coached. And and though we may find a mentor or a sage or somebody that is wise that can help us go through life, we also have the ability to coach ourselves. Research shows that positive thinking, goal setting, and performance reviews do not create results on their own. Let me say that again. Research shows that positive thinking, goal setting, and performance reviews does not create results on their own. When we don't believe that we have what it takes to accomplish these things, then they will not get done. And you can read as many self-books as you want until you are blue in the face. However, there needs to be action. Taking action is how you ignite your self-confidence. And no matter the action, we know that taking a step towards progression and moving closer to one's goals will increase the self-confidence and the belief and the ability to succeed. Now, let's be honest. Believing in yourself will become easier and easier after you've had successful situations. There's often a quote that Rome was not built in a day. And that is true. However, when you start accomplishing things little by little, you start to gain that inertia and gain that rhythm and gain that momentum in order for you to accomplish greatness. And I know that I've said this many a times upon this podcast, but the person that we manipulate most is ourselves. We have the power to manipulate ourselves to be more confident. We have the power to manipulate ourselves to be self-assured. A great individual that displays this quite often is Conor McGregor. And I don't know, maybe it's Sunday, but it's these sports references are just coming off the tongue. He believed in himself and his ungodly amount of self-confidence allowed him to achieve some of the greatest feats in Miss Martial Arts history, we have the power to manipulate ourselves to be greater, to be better, to produce more, and to operate at our highest peak, at our highest self. I challenge each listener today, start by journaling on where you want to be in life. Write all the things down you want to have and the kind of person you want to be. And from this self-evaluation, from this audit, come up with strategies to get to that point, coaching your own self. Now, lastly, how can you have faith if you don't know who you really are? How can you have faith? How can you have self-confidence? How can you have self-belief if you do not know who you truly are? Are you trying to be somebody you're not? Self-confidence comes from embracing who you are and what is important to you. It comes from being authentic and being inauthentic and trying to mold yourself to be more palatable to others is self-destruction. And knowing oneself oftentimes is easier said than done. 
the pressure to fit in, the pressure to be normal, the pressure to be what others want you to be is very, very strong because we all want to have approval from our peers, from our mentors and from the people that we look up to. However, I believe that we are put on this earth to live a remarkable life that is based upon who we are deep down and inside. I believe that our skills and our talents, as well as our advantages and our disadvantages, are so unique that we have to embrace who we are and live the best us, live the best you, live the best me. And then we will achieve true greatness. I have a strong desire for more. I want more in my personal life. I want more in my business. I want more for my children. And so my desire to have more also is a desire to understand who I truly am. Is a desire to discover who I am at the essence of my core. I want to understand what makes me unique. And then I want to celebrate those things. I want to live in my true identity based upon core values, understanding my worth, my abilities, but also having a realization that I am human and that as a human, that I am imperfect. But because I am imperfect, that's what makes me unique. Now, the thing about self-confidence is it doesn't happen overnight and you can be self-confident in a traumatic experience or just something can shake it. But however, I believe if you are willing to put forth the necessary work, if you are willing to be consistent, if you are willing to evaluate yourself, if you are willing to coach yourself and believe and hold yourself to the fire, then greatness will become of you. Remember, belief in oneself is what gives athletes the ability to train through pain, injury, and loss and make it back to the top. Belief in oneself is what allows business and entrepreneurs to bounce back even when something as bad as COVID comes and changes and shifts the land of business. So before... You rely on others. You must rely on yourself because you have everything that you need already deep inside of you. Ben Simmons is a famous and currently controversial figure in the NBA. He is a six foot ten point forward for the Philadelphia 76ers who if I could be quite honest, is setting a precedence for mental health and superstar favoritism currently in the NBA. As of today, October, November the 14th, 2001, Ben Simmons has yet to play a game in the basketball season for the Philadelphia 76ers. After having which many would say is a complete and utter meltdown, a lackluster and subpar performance in last year's playoff, Ben Simmons entered this season 
demanding to be traded from the Philadelphia 76ers. He actually did not attend training camp. And when he did get to the team, he was more of a nuisance than anything to the point where he refused to go in a drill by his coach and had to be sent home. It was later determined that Ben Simmons was suffering from mental illness. As a person who has been in some pretty adverse times, I am not one to judge anybody's spectrum of mental illness. However, I just wanted to highlight how mental illness or dealing with mental illness does not give you a pass on your responsibilities and your duties both in life and in society. There was an article written in The Athletic that Ben Simmons believes that the Philadelphia 70 Censors recent actions are damaging his overall mental health and that it is pushing him farther and farther and farther away from being fit to play basketball. Ben Simmons is not even saying this directly himself. He is using Rich Paul, who is the CEO of Clutch Sports, who is also Ben Simmons' um, agent. And they are stating that the fines, the targeting, and the negative publicity that is being shined towards Ben Simmons is hampering his mental health overall. Now, I think that we have to understand something about this. And I think that this is a very, very interesting ploy. Once again, this podcast is not meant to examine or determine whether or not Ben Simmons has mental health issues. This podcast is just simply to think about the why and the how and the the what. And if you are an organization like the 76ers, you believe you have been more than fully supportive of Ben Simmons within the process. They had actually stopped finding him. They actually presented him with a doctor so that he could be evaluated and get some therapy. And they've also allowed him to rehab. Um, Quite honestly, Ben Simmons has been MIA and he is purposely denying the 76ers to have any, any type of communication about his mental health or his overall physical health. In that case, the 76ers did the only thing that they can do, which is fine Ben Simmons for not adhering to his contract. The contract that is going to pay him millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, We have to understand something that the fact that Ben Simmons may not be physically fit or physically ready or mentally ready to play basketball is something that we all have to 
respect and we all have to acknowledge. However, that does not mean that Philadelphia does not have to hold him to a standard and also have to pay him when technically he is not fit for work. When you are not fit for work, when you are not fit to um, fulfill your contractual obligations, you can be either fined or a reduction of pay is something that is possible. Not only that, but we also have to mention the fact that this is a situation where a superstar athlete, somebody that makes more money than a lot of us that are living in the quote unquote day to day world world is demanding a trade and does not want to pay play for a team, but also does not want to give up any pay. We live in a sick society where you don't want to play for a team fulfilling your contractual obligations, but you want the team to fulfill their financial obligations, which is to pay you. So you want the 76ers to pay you for not being mentally and physically ready to play the game of basketball. A team that is already in the midst of their season. As of this podcast recording, um, the 76ers also did something which would many would consider a showing of good faith when they granted Simmons eight point two five millions and was given to him um, as a sign of good faith only for the same day. Within that same time for him to be thrown out of practice for declining to participate in defensive drills. We live in a society that is becoming more aware of the overall mental psyche of a human being. That is without a doubt. However... One being in a bad mental place, one being depressed, one dealing with the anguish and the adversity of mental strain. That does not resolve one from having to do their roles and their responsibilities. So under the Armour podcast, what do you think? Do you think that Ben Simmons should be getting paid for refusing to play for Saying that he's not mentally nor physically ready, but also demanding that he still be paid as if he is on the court with his fellow teammates playing the game of basketball. And even though this is a game of basketball, which people may or may not understand, it's just the 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 premise does one declaring that they have mental health problems or that they are in not a good mental health state resolve them from their contractual obligations what's up thank you for taking the time to tap into this podcast If you want to follow me on social medias, you can follow me on Facebook at Joshua Broomfield. You can follow me on Instagram at VegasMr702.com. 
If you have any comments, feedback, or you have any suggestions for the podcast, you can go ahead and either hit me up directly on both those sites, or you can go ahead and email me at VegasMr702 at Gmail. Once again, thank you for checking out the podcast and follow me. I'll make sure to follow you back. Why do sensible and rational people seem to lose their ability to act sensibly and rationally when there is conflict? What makes us so angry and upset that we are open to tearing apart deep relationships and a variety of squabbles, which with hindsight can come across as petty and childish? What drives us to be unpleasant, bitter and confrontational? Man, our self-esteem or our ego is one of the strongest factors in conflicts, and it is the generator of some of the most powerful and extreme emotions. We all have a self-esteem, whether it's corporate or individual. We all have a need to think well of ourselves, for others to think well of us. Self-esteem governs many of the decisions we make daily. As we expend huge amount of time and effort constantly maintaining and protecting our own self-image. However, on the flip side, our desire for approval is our aversion for disapproval, or worse still, the dread of humiliation. A perfect example of this is the fear of missing a game-winning shot. If you've ever played sports, you know that like that is, you know, you're at the free throw line. Your team is down by one. You have two free throws and you miss both of the free throws and there's no time on the clock for you to redeem yourself. That dread can be greater than flying or even death. It can. It can consume you in a way that is so utterly Powerful, it can stop you in your tracks. However, this is something that neuroscientists have been thinking about and studying as far as our self esteem and connection with our brain. Now, one study at the University of Michigan was researching social pain, something that is activated the same circuits in the brain as physical pain. And I thought that that was very, very, very interesting. So the the study shows that any attack on our self-image is interpreted by our brain as physical pain. When we speak of hurt feelings, we acknowledge that any form of censure from slight criticism to outright condemnation or rejection affects our self-esteem. And yet we experience it in the same brain sector as physical pain. That is wild. The study also goes to show you that the word sorry, and you know I hate that word, is one of the most difficult words to express despite being the quickest and cheapest and most effective form of resolving a dispute. Our brain 
seems to indicate to us that saying sorry will be as painful as getting punched in the face. And the ability to monitor our neural pathways help us to see how our brain functions in conflict situations. So great example. Um, you know, we all have that fight or flight instinct. This this reflex is governed by our amadula. The the two small structures of the brain that controls our instinctive responses. Now, we originally needed these because, you know, at one time we weren't living in houses and we weren't driving Teslas and, you know, we didn't really have any blickies on us. You know, we were out there with sticks and stones and we weren't at the top of the food chain and there were other things that could prey upon us. We weren't a alpha predator. And so we needed to have the ability to act swiftly and instinctively when faced with physical attacks in the wild. If you've ever been in a situation where somebody starts running and you just start running after them, that is your fight or flight taking over. Um, however, the studies show now that this same area within our brain seems to also be triggered by attacks on our self-esteem. When the brain perceives a threat, whether it be physical or self-image, um, this part of our brain takes control, diverting signals away from the cortex of thinking and kind of using non-logical and non-analytical process instead creating a instant defense or instant reaction. I believe that this is one of the reasons why when we in when we are in conflict or when we are having conflict with somebody, we're able to say things we don't mean and we're able to just blurt out things that we didn't even really think that we were thinking about. We instantly become defensive and so instead of using physical harm like fists, elbows, knees, and feet to harm someone, we can actually create physical harm with our words or we feel the need to defend ourselves with our vocabulary and our jargon. However, I think that this study, while it does explain, you know, the fact that our self-esteem can have a big impact on us and that we can experience pain similar to physical pain due to just, you know, being wrong or, or, or being in those moments. I think a lot of it also is that our ego or our self-esteem is so inflated. Now, when a person is wrong or when I am wrong, I try to be wrong and admit that I'm wrong. And so I can better understand or better even get a grasp of where and how I was wrong. However, I know that this did not happen overnight. I know that when I was in my 20s and somebody told me I was wrong, I was itching and ready to defend myself. And even sometimes now what ends up happening is I believe that we have an innate nature to want to prove the other person is wrong or if I'm wrong, I'm not all the way wrong. I'm just partially wrong. However, there has to be a maturity. There has to be a um, evolution. There has to be an epiphany of understanding that your 
self-esteem and your ego is inflated only because you're looking at it through your eyes and that there has to be a continuous humbling of oneself in order to kind of control that beast, which is your ego. I believe that our egos have more harm for us than good. And I believe that once we begin to daily humble ourselves and daily put ourselves in a place where we can be wrong, where we're open to being wrong and where we're open to admitting that we're wrong, that that um that physical like hurt of having your self-esteem hurt, I don't think that that can correlate. I think if you don't manage your ego and if you don't manage your self-esteem, then yes, being wrong or being in a dispute or having conflict could be the same as rendering physical pain. But I could be wrong. Tell me what you think. Remember, to be more real, be more human, be more honest. Catch me next time as we continue to go under the armor.